0: In this interview, I'm once again joined by Amoda Ma, spiritual teacher and author of books such as Embodied Enlightenment and Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. Amoda Ma shares her experience of falling into the abyss of emptiness and the consequences that followed. She describes the dark night of the soul that preceded this experience and how its aftermath healed her childhood abandonment trauma. Amoda Ma also talks about the life of a spiritual teacher how she went from living an ascetic life of anonymity in the English countryside to moving to America to become a well-known teacher, and shares her observations of a boys' club dynamic in the spiritual teaching scene. Amoda Ma also recounts relearning relationship after her enlightenment, when she met her now-husband, and discusses the feminine frequency of awakening, and how that relates to the inner marriage. So, without further ado, Amoda Ma. Omodemar, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Steve. Um, it's lovely to be back.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy to be uh, speaking with you again, Omodemar. In our last episode, we ended on something of a cliffhanger, and we set the scene for some threads to pick up in this sequel. We ended on the abyss moment, falling into the abyss. So I'm wondering if you could pick the story up from that point. Perhaps you could uh, set the scene and situate us. And, and what happens next?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm not sure quite how uh, deeply we went into the abyss. So maybe I should say a little bit more about that. Um, uh, Really after many years of uh, spiritual seeking and spiritual practices, And after my experience in India, um, I sort of uh, gave myself to the path of surrender to life. That's what India taught me. Noticing in myself where there was resistance um, and really just naturally being where i am without any avoidance um you know in my internal landscape and and so when when there was this period of solitude after the breakup of my relationship after about a year or a year and a half maybe two years and i was a solitary person anyway um that's when mm, the abyss of emptiness yeah so it revealed itself and it was it was it was just in in that in that deep solitude in that deep aloneness and in the surrender because that was my my way at that point i i fell into that abyss and it felt like a death i'm not quite sure if we touched on this last time but that death was a psychological death and it was a a vast unbounded emptiness and a, a disappearance of the psychological structure of self and miraculously it was also emerging into the fullness of life Now, after that, I noticed that my, if you like, relationship with life, which was no longer really a relationship, it was just, it was almost, it was as if I was I was life itself or life, yeah, there was no separation, but I noticed that everything was fundamentally different, I guess, because the the self that had been there as a victim of life, yeah, as a as an observer of life, as an experiencer of life, was no longer there. And so everything was fundamentally different, and yet absolutely the same life went on. What happened after that? Well, life carried on, but my um, it was like I was living from the unknown. Nothing was known anymore. There was nothing that I could stand on. There was nothing... um, uh, that I could—it's uh, like the whole psychological structure of good, bad, welcome, unwelcome—all uh, inner division fell away, and so the fullness that was experienced, as well as the emptiness that was experienced, was 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 profoundly different to ha- you know from from the previous you know anything prior to that and yet life carried on as an ordinary life um no i i didn't because i wasn't actually seeking enlightenment or awakening and this happened almost as an organic and yet very unexpected um part of my journey, my my life, Um, I didn't have a voice or a self that said, ah, I'm enlightened or even I'm awakened. There was just nothing there to report back on the experience. There was just this constant, almost naked innocence. And so it went on for a number of years. Occasionally it would like occur to me, oh, oh, I, 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 think, I think this is what they call enlightenment. But that would pass very quickly. And so life just went on. Um, that, I, I, that's when I wrote my books, my first books, um, which I don't think in retrospect really expressed the... The, the subtleties or the freshness of this experience, I was still sort of almost observing it and writing about it from that uh, sort of wider um, perception. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a totally direct expression, <laughs> um, although you know it had a fragrance of it. Um, I'm not sure what else to say about this period of time. Um, it was like being uh, a newborn, <laughs> experiencing uh, life totally anew. But there was—it wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a high. It wasn't a, a bliss state. Um, although there was uh, a fundamental peace and spaciousness in it. Um, I think it was quite a few years later that the the term and the concept and the understanding of non-duality came in. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, there were just several years of just ordinary life but all of it you know even the unwelcome parts like I still had a turbulent relationship with my mother um that was really the the only kind of uh sticky place um that remained I mean I still didn't have any money I still didn't know what I was doing even though I'd written my book it you know I was nobody so it 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 didn't really have an audience, although it was well received over the years. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I wasn't looking for something to do. It just wasn't, you know, I was, I was kind of just allowing a deeper impulse to emerge if it was going to emerge. And that took a number of years. And I think that during that time, I would say that was a ripening process. It was an embodiment process. Um, I didn't know, again, about embodiment. I just was living my life. But I think that what happened was that this unbounded seeing, it's like the veils had dropped, all the veils of uh, identity and narrative and uh, division, yeah? had fallen away and that started to filter into every aspect of my life and the the turbulence with my mother was highlighted it's as if what had kept it suppressed finally wasn't there anymore so it was very raw and uh uh part of the purification process. Um, But even that was met with uh, a kind of nakedness, exactly that. It wasn't suppressed anymore. I wasn't, you know, that there was turbulence and it was very challenging and it was very painful. And um, we did battle at times, but it's like the battle had come right to the surface. It was no longer down there. So everything, everything came into view um and was allowed, was welcomed. Um, it was, it was, it was really a profound yes to everything. There was nothing that was separate from life. There was nothing that was separate from Godness, which is how I described it at the time. Um, it was the totality was absolutely as it is and there was nothing in me that was rejecting it Um, and like I say that took a number of years to really filter in and uh, it was about maybe it was actually 12 years later (laughs) that I was able well not able but willing to start speaking from that
0: yeah, very fascinating. Um, might I ask you a couple of questions about it? Of course. You described that period as a sort of dark night of the soul and a barren landscape. And then there was a, I'm not clear if it was a moment or, a, or another, another period of moments where you, you say you consciously surrendered to the desolation of non existence. That's how you put it. Consciously surrender to the desolation of non-existence. And that's when something changed. I'm quoting you now. So I'm curious about that. Was there a kind of moment where this abyss, barren landscape period broke open into something new? Was it an epiphany moment? Or was it some sort of this... uh, Conscious surrendering to the desolation of non- non-existence was this some sort of gradual process? And what happened to the abyss? Did it ever go away? Is it still there?
1: Okay, so you're 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 referring actually to the period um, that led up to awakening, not not the following period that I'm describing, which had a certain barrenness on a material level, but not on a (laughs) on an inner inner level.
0: Yeah, right. I'd like I'd like to ask a little bit about just that moment. And then I have Mm. questions about the period you've been describing, which is the post the post. uh, post. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, was it a conscious surrender? The landscape of desolation, which I described as a dark night of the soul, was something that, if you like, crept up on me from the inside over a period of time. I think it's always been there. But it finally emerged more viscerally and in view and as an ongoing landscape for that period of perhaps, I think it was around two years that I had ended the relationship with my partner husband at the time which was incredibly dramatic on many levels and incredibly difficult to end that relationship because I needed love. And it catapulted me into a profound sense of abandonment from love. Now, I, I, do, I did like being on my own. <laughs> I like the solitariness, but I, I still was yearning for the love. And so not only was there an actual uh, human experience of being alone, but because I was alone for, for I mean, two years is not long, And I learned to live my life and, you know, I was fine, (laughs) perfectly capable and self-sufficient of living in the modern world on my own. Um, But it seemed to stretch out into an eternity. That's really an inner sense. And what I was experiencing that was not really an abandonment from being in a relationship or even the old wounds shall we say of being abandoned by my father my mother my original father I had done so much work on that when I was sensitive to this inner landscape it was an abandonment that was not as so much personal but impersonal in other words an abandonment by I could say God, but I I I I hadn't I didn't have a concept for God then. I was, you know, to me, God was a, a Christian belief um, that had no relevance to me. And I didn't believe in any God out there. So it's not a word that I would use. I use it in retrospect because that's what it felt like: an abandonment by existence itself. And that's what opened up the abyss, and this so so there's an inner landscape of desolation, of barrenness, a sense of nothing is growing here, it's dead, and it really didn't have to do with my outer circumstances, although I was, like I say, a solitary, but that it wasn't to do with. Uh, I haven't got any money or I haven't got a relationship. It wasn't to do with that. It, was, it just really emerged when I, when I was just with myself in the quiet moments. But it became all pervasive. I wasn't depressed by any means. Um, I wasn't neurotic. <laughs> um, I, 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 there wasn't really even a poor me, although I think underneath it, there was a poor me in the sense of being a victim of existence. I had been abandoned by existence. It felt like an abandonment of the soul. It felt like it was never ending. It felt like it was a black hole that would swallow me up. And again, it had nothing to do with depression. I was actually quite buoyant (laughs) and, you know, quite mature, if you like, um, in in my psychological and spiritual development. It was just such a a, a subtle inner sense, but profound. And I had an instinct, a natural instinct that this, that I was experiencing, held uh, the key to the nature of suffering. Not just my suffering, but suffering. And again, I'm not speaking about circumstantial suffering, (laughs) things that happen to us or happen in the world on a a material, physical, three-dimensional level. I mean psychological suffering. And somehow
0: conscious surrender A clear desire to
1: discover the nature of suffering and the willingness to meet what is here without any avoidance brought it all to a place unexpectedly, and yet maybe there was some, some uh, conscious interaction with that, where at some point in that two year period, towards the end of it, I was sitting on my sofa in my living room and this inner landscape, this abyss grew so huge, that i felt as if i was going to get completely lost in it and not lost in a in an enlightened way where you lose the self but just swallowed up by it like a death and i also recognized in that moment that this was the edge of the abyss that i had always come up against in my early years, in my twenties, which created the thought I'm going to kill myself. And then perhaps some clumsy attempt at that. And I recognized it. And I also recognized in that moment that the mind wanted to move away from it. And how did it move away from it? It moved away from it. I had two strategies. The primary strategy was to overlay it with a thought about a brighter future. Future, some uplifting thought, some uh, maybe spiritual thought, some uh, maybe loving thought. Any any thought other than nakedness, other than no thought. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, But it seemed harmless, but I noticed it and it might, that thought would lead me to perhaps pick up a spiritual book that was on my bookshelf and in my aloneness, sit and read it. Well, why not? That's what we do very, you know, when we're alone, we read, we, yeah. But I just noticed it as a distraction. I noticed it as an archaic mechanism of avoidance. And it felt like lifetimes of that unconscious mechanism. The other distraction, again, totally harmless, was going to the kitchen to make a cup of tea. Yeah, a very English thing. But when you're on your own, enjoy a nice cup of tea and reading a book, what could be, you know, wrong with that? But again, I noticed it as a movement away from true solitude. Now I was a meditator, so I know how to sit in silence, but this wasn't meditation. This was just my ordinary day. Ah, and this all happened really quickly. It's not like I spent a lot of time pontificating about it or ruminating about it. It happened in a nanosecond. It was like the clear light shone on this moment and I felt an ancient, primitive mechanism of self. And in that moment there was conscious surrender, just being here, right here. It's so soft. It's so selfless. It's yeah, there's no tightness in it. There's no forcing it. It was just like, and it was a, that was it. That, that was the blip. It was experienced as a blip. It wasn't like a great explosion, <laughs> but it was a blip. It's like it went, whoosh. but it was something happened. And then everything changed. <laughs> Perspective changed. Yeah, everything changed. No, I, I experienced myself as nothing and everything. And that remained. Yeah. Nothing and everything. Nowhere. I couldn't find myself anywhere. And yet I am everywhere.
0: <laughs> what happened to that abyss of existential abandonment after the blip?
1: Gone. Vanished.
0: Instantly. Vanished
1: totally. Instantly. Yes. Yes. Instantly, uh, no abandonment. I never have felt, experienced, uh, thought of a me that is abandoned since that moment. That's what was, that's what was so radically um, different. And I could only see that. From that point, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know there was a victim structure before that. You don't see because that's who you are. You, that's who you think you are. <laughs> yeah, the whole personality, the whole personhood is built on that structure. But it was like the main pin that held this uh, uh, psychological structure of self, which is experienced as a separate me, completely got pulled out. So how can I be abandoned from anything? How can I be abandoned by life? How can I be abandoned by God? How can I be abandoned by love? It was seen to be a complete uh, illusion, a, a, a mara, because I am life. I and life are one. It's inseparable because I am everywhere and I am nowhere. So it's like emptiness and fullness merged into one. <laughs> yeah, so, so everything changed from that point.
0: And what did you notice about how you viewed or related to other people? If I might probe some of the contours of this, of this uh, experience. That's what I'm curious about.
1: The fundamental difference was that everything and everyone is appearing in me, not outside of me. And therefore, there is only one. Now, that doesn't mean that I like everyone, or get on with everyone, or um uh, let's say, falsely nice to everyone, or falsely spiritual towards everyone, yeah, we are 7 billion, or maybe 8 billion now, individuations, all absolutely unique, with different resonances, frequencies, vibrations, levels of unconsciousness or consciousness. I can experience the one beingness out of which we all arise. And in that, there is a great acceptance of all individuations. That's it. And yet, that doesn't mean that I have to be in friendship, or I mean, intimate friendship or relationship with everybody.
0: (laughs) That's very interesting. That you're leading to another question I had about boundary function, or one's personal boundary function, etc. And you're you're going there already. Um, How have you experienced that? aspect of life but by boundary function here i don't mean the boundary between self and other i mean the boundary, sort of saying no to things or no to people or uh, ending a relationships or you know uh, that i mean the boundary in that sense
1: yes um it's a good question because i speak a lot about openness and my whole my essential teaching as it has become is about openness and then it gets very confused with this this boundary thing um, so Uh, let's say this paradoxically my boundaries became clearer prior to awakening my boundaries were a mess because I needed love so I couldn't say no I was afraid to say no Uh, I was afraid to say no to my father when he was alive i was afraid to say no to my mother in you know when there were certain uh, dramas and <laughs> requests or beseeching that that, that wasn't healthy uh, i was afraid to say no in my relationships um with a partner with a husband uh, and so it, everything was a mess um uh, i i i was a mouse <laughs> yeah afraid to to speak up or to be seen or yeah and 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 so after awakening after the the main pin of the victim identity had been pulled out paradoxically my boundaries were clear clearer but those boundaries don't have violence in them it it's not that Anything needed to be defended. Essentially, that which I am is undefended. And, and that's how that is experienced as a nakedness and openness, a freshness, and a, yeah, nothing is defended against. But there is a functional yes and a functional no. For instance, uh, <laughs> a very. <laughs> Small or mundane or ordinary example uh, that comes to mind is that because in my youth there was, I'm a woman and reasonably attractive and not having clear boundaries, I would get many requests for all sorts of interactions, either short term or long term. It was impossible to say no most of the time. Well, after this, it's very easy, but it doesn't have violence in it. It's a simple no. And that's the same in any interaction, um, any invitation, if you like, because I have no need. There was no more need, no more need for love, no more need for approval, no more need for recognition. And so it just arises very naturally, the yes and the no from an inner intelligence and not from a defended mind or a defended personhood. And also, the experience was and is now that because the frequency field, for want of a better word, description, is one of. Uh, Let's say it's clear. It's not messed up by the dynamics of the self. It's not covered over or entangled. I, I don't really get into those situations. The individuals that come into my environment or experience are mostly, I mean, occasionally it might be, but mostly in resonance with this. So there's no conflict. <laughs> yeah. There's no need to go, no, no, no. <laughs> so it does change the nature of relating. Yeah, when you're relating not from need, but relating. Well, you see, there was no need for a relationship after that. I stopped looking for relationship. One of the first things that I said to myself um, after this blip, yeah, sometime after that, a year or something, two years after that, I, I, I said to myself, well, this is it. There's no more need for another to fulfill me. I'm married to God. Now you can take that in all sorts of ways, but I didn't mean I was married to God in the conventional sense. It meant the inner marriage had taken place and therefore there was fulfillment that couldn't be fulfilled by anybody else and therefore no need for that. And when we relate from from that essential fulfillment, then all relationships change because no more contracts. No more strategies <laughs> Now of course I am in relationship now I, yeah <laughs> that was a surprise too yeah but it's fundamentally uh, fundamentally different.
0: Can you say something more about that uh, it was a surprise. what do you mean by that and in what way is it fundamentally different?
1: Um, well again, about two years after this period after having you know like I say this fulfillment that couldn't be fulfilled or needed to be fulfilled by anybody else um cabby who is now my partner husband um he he was he was around we had been working together when i was teaching my movement work which had completely come to an end by then anyway but um he 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 i knew him he 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 also was married so it wasn't uh, uh, anybody looking for a relationship but we we sort of knew each other a little bit um but a, about a year or two after i think a couple of years after this blip <laughs> um it sort of became obvious that he was appearing as an invitation to embody on an earthly level the love that I am, the fulfill, fulfillment that I am. It, it was just a, a knowing. And so, a relationship, a a deep friendship and relationship formed, which really was not based on need. Um, It was that there is no need in our relationship. Yeah, we there are no uh, sticky contracts. I, I don't want it to sound like a sort of holier than thou relationship. I'm, I'm just describing how it is from the inner. And Kavi would say the same. Um, we 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 explore this on our on our courses the, the nature of relationship. But it it was like there were two silences meeting, as opposed to as opposed to two egos needing each other. It, it, there was no codependency and yet there is such an intimacy and something um, it's like something it's very ordinary but it's also extraordinary <laughs> yeah because none of the push and pull and the like the subtle sometimes not so subtle strategies of um, uh, feeling rejected or uh, needing to overpower or needing to hide or needing to control or needing to seduce or need yet none of that takes place so it's very unsticky it's like two emptinesses meeting and in that emptiness there's a kind of utter fulfillment (laughs) and yeah It's very human as well.
0: (laughs) You mentioned that the thought, maybe this is what they call enlightenment, would occasionally fleet through your mind, uh, but wouldn't stick. And you talked about thoughts. Did you have thoughts at all? Or... Was it that there were no thoughts, or was there just no thinker, but there were thoughts? For example, these are some of the ways it's expressed. Uh, different people express their experiences. I'm wondering if you could say something about your experience of thought after that blip?
1: Hmm. It's not that there were no thoughts. There was, and continues to be, but at first, it's very, you know, palpable. More palpable um, a silence. That silence isn't to do with having no thoughts. That silence was a it was like the baseline. It was the foundation. It was the silence held everything, which means, that thought can still arise and of course it does it's the nature of mind is to be a producer a generator of thought but that thought didn't stick it didn't stick to the me because there was no longer a me that feels bad about something or good about something or wants to get rid of something or wants to hold on to something or wants to move into the future or wants to remember the past. It's like the thought just, it's like a, a wave that just moves through the emptiness, a ripple. So thought was experienced as a ripple, but there was nobody here to grasp that thought. So it was almost imperceptible. Now, of course, if there's thought that is focused on something, a task, well, then that's thought. But it's very, um, again, functional. It's doing what it needs to do, yeah, <laughs> a task. That's that's kind of intelligent thought. Everything else is like flotsam and jetsam. So there was a quietness, and I would say that still is. It's like... Um, uh it's like being the sky yeah and sometimes there are clouds and sometimes there aren't sometimes there's a wind a breeze sometimes there's a storm and sometimes there isn't but there isn't to me identifying with those thoughts so again that's kind of fundamentally different but mm. of course we interact with uh the three-dimensional world we interact on the level of you know, individuations and things, manifestations. So thought arises in response to that. But thought and narrative are different. (laughs) Narratives don't uh, arise. Narratives are interpretations of our experience. But thought can arise without interpretation.
0: I have two more questions, actually, about this um, uh, post-blip state or way of being or experience. The first of which is, did you receive any reflection from others who knew you before and after that there was any kind of change in you? Did anyone remark on anything or was it an entirely inner revolution?
1: I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. I didn't socialize <laughs> I mean, really um the I guess the i guess Kavi would remark, yeah, Kavi, my partner husband, would remark on certain aspects of it. Uh-huh. Not from the place of having a commentary about enlightenment, but he experienced something very different in, in his relationship to me. Uh, I'm probably not the best person to describe his experience or his report, but I'll I'll try because he's spoken about it many times. He would say it was like he was having a relationship with a clear mirror. Now, I didn't talk about my, I mean, I did tell him about my experience, but I didn't say, hey, look, I've awakened and I've got some teachings to give you. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That just wasn't my inclination. And anyway, I didn't have any teachings uh, or any, you know, spiritual, you know, one-upmanship, not at all. Um, but he felt that whenever he put out any what he called the the tentacles, yeah, that happen in relationship, which are based on need, yeah, subtle control or yeah, something. Um whenever he or you know the need for something love or yeah whenever he put that out whereas in a, a in other relationships and in most relationships they would stick somewhere that's where we dovetail in relationship that's what creates a codependent relationship it also creates the glue in relationship for better or for worse yeah whenever he put that out it was as if it had nothing to land on So it would just go, "Hmm." and actually that was part of his uh, more gradual awakening where those tendencies just dissipated over time. Not because I opposed them or, or, or told him about them and said, hey, look, you're doing this. Absolutely not. It's just that there was nothing for them to stick on. Absolutely nothing. It was just this open space that is love which is the deepest acceptance and so um he noticed that something was different but there wasn't really anybody else around that knew me before or after
0: very interesting and then my last question on on this uh topic sometimes i've heard people make distinctions between after an experience like that there's two categories of effect one of which is lasting, and the other of which is is, uh, more temporary. So some people will say, well, I was in this state of bliss and deep acceptance, and then eventually the bliss sort of attenuated, but the deep acceptance has remained, something like this. I'm wondering if you also experienced two categories of effect after this blip, something lasting and something temporary, or perhaps that's not the right way to ask.
1: Let me just reflect on that so I can be as accurate as possible because you know I'm always having to look back, yeah, to, to yeah, to see to see what that what happened. Um, <clears throat> No, I don't think there was a temporary and mm, abiding. It was all abiding. Uh, I didn't experience bliss. Bliss comes and goes. What What happened was that over time, and again, this is the 12 year period,
0: A profound
1: goodness in what is came more and more to the forefront. So rather than it being temporary, it came more into the forefront. What had what was experienced? or known after the blip was as well as I am life you know, I and life are one, I am love, I am inseparable I am that that was the initial mm -hmm, realization or recognition and visceral sense Um, but what was the, the ongoing, unchanging, yeah, the abidance, was presence. Not I am being present, but presence is all there is. There can't be anything else. And in that, nothing is avoided. Nothing is rejected. There are no cover-ups. There are no interpretations that, that separate me from this. And that remained all the way through. Now, we can call that peace. But it's not that my life was always peaceful. I had all sorts of financial issues, housing issues, mother issues. But this, this abiding presence was always here. And eventually, after several years, that was experienced as an essential goodness in what is. Now this has been abiding. This has never changed. There wasn't a high. <laughs> there wasn't a bliss. Maybe that is bliss. Maybe that's a subtle current of bliss, but it, it wasn't experienced in that way, or interpret, you know, named in that way. That's not how I experienced it. It was just. This, nothing was changing, and yet life was always changing. This, and I came to know that as the fundamental nature of I, not me, but I, and that just has remained.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for... Uh, describing that in, in such detail um you know you mentioned this 12-year period and it's bookended in in some ways by your two publishing phases and we were just mentioning this we we're discussing this briefly before we started recording that your early books how to find god in everything which you later revised um and republished as radical awakening some years later and then uh, change your life change your world part of this early post blip period and then there's a big gap and then your books like embodied enlightenment and falling open in a world falling apart came in the second publishing phase so i'm really interested actually about that uh gap and what changed and what motivated you to publish those first two books and what inspired the second um Mm -hmm. phase but also it's something you've said about that first phase, which was that publishing your first book, you've said, brought your personality patterns back, uh, which you worked through. That's a quote from an interview you, you, you conducted some years ago. So I'm curious about that. So can you talk perhaps a little about this first publishing period, and then what led to this big gap, and then why, why the second period? I wrote
1: How to Find God in Everything. Yes, not long after that initial blip, although it was a few years. Yeah, It was, I don't know, three, four years. Because in some ways I'm essentially a writer. (laughs) I've always written things. I've written articles. I write, obviously I wrote in my academic years. I wrote for many uh, mainstream uh, publications. Um, And I seem to have a natural capacity for expressing in the written word. In those days, I couldn't express at all in the spoken word. But in the written word, I could express and write very clearly and coherently with good structure and grammar and all of that, which helps. Yeah. Um, So and also I I used to and still do um, have a relationship with the writing process that is quite divine. I experience uh, a merging of um, self and no self. Um, And so it was just a natural proclivity to write. And so I wrote that book. Well, I wrote a few chapters and I happened. I mean, publishing is incredibly difficult. In the mainstream, and in those days, it wasn't the days of self-publishing. You had to go through a mainstream publisher. But there was something about that process that also appealed to me. Having been an old academic, I like the publication process. I like going to, I like writing a proposal and having it reviewed. And there's something about that. It's just my my conditioning on the one level. That's what I've learned, um, uh, and. I happened to meet uh, an agent, uh, a publishing agent, and she read the first two or three chapters. And she said, wow, this has got something. I was like, oh, okay. She said, it's got a lot of presence in it. And it reminded her of the power of now. I don't think it's anywhere near the power of now really, but she it reminded her of that. And she felt she could give it to a publisher. And get a good response, and she did. She gave it to Watkins, which is a, as you know, a well-established, um, respectful, uh, respected rather, <laughs> publisher of spiritual books, and they loved it. And I think my publisher saw non-duality in it, but I didn't. I didn't even know what non-duality was. So he published it, and that was it. That's how that came about. Now, I, I, that was it, the, there was nothing else. I wasn't speaking in public. That was just a publication. Um, there was a little bit of interest in it as it got published and released and circulated in some ways by the new thought movement in America, um, uh, sort of the Neil Donald Walsh kind of approach um his books were very god based in the, in that way um and so it it kind of circulated a little bit i never felt it was complete i don't yeah but that's what happened um that's it <laughs> not much happened after that i think i did uh get invited to speak at a few um In England, in various places, Um, I think I traveled up to Manchester and somewhere else, Um, these groups, I don't don't know what they're called now, they're they're sort of uh, informal groups that gather to speak about various topics, they're speakers' groups. Uh, not big speakers, just, you know, individuals who have something to say or have written a book or or something, and you kind of practice your speaking skills. And I got invited to some of these and to speak about the book. And it was very challenging. I mean, for a start, maybe that's when my self-consciousness kind of Remnants of it still came up, my you know, and that kind of thing. But that was all part of a sort of purification again of just being seen, being exposed. I mean, this was just only a few times. And I realized quickly that speaking about it wasn't wasn't right. Yeah, you know, I'm not speaking about anything. And so I stopped. And went through this long period of not knowing not doing and a deepening naturally gradually of this uh, abiding presence throughout it all and that took 12 years (laughs) that's the 12 year period Um, uh, at some point in uh, yeah towards the end of that 12 year period when i had really let go of any anything everything but just being here <laughs> yeah in the not knowing and meeting life in the not knowing there was this impulse and it was really tiny and it said speak speak not about it but from it and that meant no notes no book no concepts, not about what I had written, not about what I had experienced, but speak from it. And that started a whole new trajectory where I started to speak from silence. And it was like a little shoot. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have an idea of where it was going, either within the speaking of it or in the longer movement of it the trajectory of it it definitely wasn't any idea that i was going to be a spiritual teacher i just spoke from that silence and that's when it started to sort of reveal itself through the spoken word and at that point i felt drawn not to write a book for any particular reason but to actually write from it because I started to understand, if you like, that whole process of awakening and what happens after awakening. And in speaking with people, individuals, the groups were very small, but I still had the experience of listening to their own spiritual paths and their questions. And I'd never, exper- I'd never had that before. So now I was interacting with other spiritual seekers and listening and either reflecting back or exploring with them. And I could see all the nuances of the spiritual seeker's mind or process. And I started to write about it. And that became my book, Embodied Enlightenment, which did get published in America. And so that, yeah, that started the teaching really.
0: Where does change your life, change your world fit in? in
1: (laughs) Actually not, not nowhere. (laughs) Um, That book came about as a follow-on to how to find God in everything, because in how to find God in everything, Um, I think I just mentioned, there was a little bit of interest in the new thought realm. Um, Somehow it got the attention of somebody who at the time was developing the online courses for Neil Donald Walsh. Um, And this was in the early days of, relatively early days of the internet and e-courses were all sort of just about the rage or coming about and he had this way of creating these e-courses with videos and spoken word and audio downloads and uh, all sorts of things and he said he reached out to me and said hey i could i could really do a good course on your book how to find god in everything using each chapter as a as a teaching module and we did he created me a beautiful sort of video audio package and online package. Um, and the 10, uh, change your life, change your world was actually based on that course because the course he, he wanted me to have lessons, 10 lessons or 12 lessons that took some of the, if you like. Pointers or whatever I was writing about in how to find God and everything, and made them more like teaching modules with some exercises, some invitations, some contemplations, some practices. Mm, I was a little bit mm, unsure, yeah, because I wasn't teaching it, it teaching, and I, I I didn't want to get into practices, but it seemed to form the basis of a nice little book and Watkins were quite interested in it, and we went with it. Um, probably in retrospect, I, I, I mean, it's wonderful. I, I, I've had good feedback. Some people find it very valuable. It's very practical, but in retrospect, I, I don't think it really has the fragrance or the direction that, uh, that has emerged since then. It's a little side side
0: dish <laughs> in this 12 period, uh, 12 year period what were you doing for work for income and so on that's the first question and the second question is uh, were you still meditating were you going to spiritual gatherings sort of satsangs or things like this were you still reading previously voraciously read all sorts of um, you know books on the, on this on these sorts of subjects Were you still reading things? So, yeah, I'm curious about that 12 year period in those respects.
1: In that 12 year period, I had no work apart from writing Change Your Life, Change Your World. That was written in that period. would call that work I did I did spend months writing that six months writing that Um, I was not teaching I was not going to satsang because I don't think there were any at that time and if there were they were so hidden that I had no knowledge of them at that time I was living I'd left London and was living in the uh, initially at first in Somerset, and then down on the south coast in East Sussex, because I, 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 two reasons, one was I could no longer afford to live in London. The other is by then I was living with Cavi, and a one bedroom apartment was just too small for the two of us. Um, uh, especially because i was still trying to write and he he was a musician so he had equipment and uh, was creating albums and you know in one bedroom that's not really possible um and also he was very ill so he developed a serious case of ulcerative colitis within the first year of us being together and london didn't feel right to him so he said let's go try the countryside and off we went i'd never lived in the countryside um and essentially, during that period, we took care of Kavi, who was pretty sick, yeah, but not uh, wanting neither of us the the, the conventional uh, model, medical model. So we were on a deep healing path, um, alternative of our own uh, discovery, if you like. Of course, we had no money, so <laughs> what was being done, had to be done totally naturally and without any financial input. Um, so we were taking care of Kaby. We were uh, living a very, 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 call it frugal, call it ascetic life. It actually suited us. It suited us because everything fell away. Apart from having some shelter, which was not in any way grandiose, it was very basic and actually very, um, (laughs) it was cold. (laughs) It was, yeah, and so on and so on. So it was a bit like a barn, Um, but you know, it was a home. Um, uh, But everything fell away, everything. I'd written the two books unless you go out and promote and push a book and, I don't know, develop an audience and speak about a book, it's just a book that goes out into the ether and may sell a few copies or not. Um, I did have some clients I was working with in London because I was a rebirther as well. So that was part of what I did. Not a great practice of any great, you know, size or anything, but I had a few clients a week that I worked with. As soon as we moved to Somerset, that completely fell away we're in the middle of nowhere nobody knew who we were or there was no way of of having any kind of interaction so everything fell away everything pretty much when I look back on it it's like well what did we do all day um I don't know it was very simple it was very quiet I think I still did a lot of writing in some ways and I was learning to use the internet a bit more and it was just a very simple empty life um, kind of waiting for something uh, and then we moved to East Sussex uh, down, down on the south coast and Cavi was getting better um, and I had that impetus to speak from silence but none of it made any money We lived very, very, very frugally, yeah? When you're vegetarian, which we were then, we sort of still are, but a little more flexibility. But uh, And you don't have any social life and you don't have any family life and you don't have any children and you don't have any pets and you don't go anywhere, you don't travel anywhere. And you don't see anyone and you don't go out for meals and you don't do entertainment. Well, on the one hand, there's a great silence, an actual silence and simplicity. Uh, but also, you don't need many resources. That's what happened <laughs> until we came to America, which is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> but, you know, by then there was a natural movement into the world rather than, yeah.
0: Right. When did you become aware of this idea of non-duality?
1: Well, it was around the time that I started speaking from silence. What happened down in East Sussex was that I I, I just felt compelled um, and so I rented a room out at the, oh it was actually the library room at the friends meeting house. And it was very cheap rent. And somehow, again, we didn't know anybody, but I, I had uh, maybe a leftover of two people I worked with for rebirthing. And one of them happened to be a rebirther himself. He was also a Course in Miracles student and facilitator just pure synchronicity. And so when I said I was going to be speaking, I I called it awakened presence, speaking from awakened presence and yeah. And I I didn't know anybody and I didn't know who would come and maybe I would sit there all by myself. He said, Oh, I'll come. And he came with three of his course in miracle students. And that was my first group. Um, And It was around that time, like a few months later, that, um, again, a very synchronous situation, actually, Kavi had a very small business with superfoods, a tiny, just for friends, he would bring in high-quality superfoods like goji berries and things like that, uh, maca powder, and package them and sell them to friends who didn't have access. It was, again, in the early days of the superfood um, trend in in England, and uh, it kept us in good supply of superfoods, so that was good good for us. It never made any money, but he was uh, invited to present these superfoods at a stall in the local town hall. And one of the people that came, her sister was involved in non-duality. She was actually involved with S.A.N.D., yeah, the S.A.N.D. conference in America. So when they went to America, they were part of that kind of circle, if you like, and when the sister spoke to Kabby and asked what I did, because they were talking about just just friendly talking, she said, "Oh, you must, she must meet my sister." So I did. And she had a platform for non-dual teachers um, to put their events on and that side of thing. And as soon as we spoke, and she said, non-duality, I knew that was it. I totally understood then. It's like it it sort of fell into place. And I thought, ah, oh, that's what it is. If it had a name, which I don't like names and labels, but if it had a sort of name in the world, that's what it would be. And not that that mattered or changed anything, but it just sort of found its groove. Um, no, I didn't go around saying I was a non-duality teacher. It just sort of filtered in somehow and um, brought me into contact with uh, non-dual groups that invited me to to speak there.
0: (laughs) Right. How did you come to America? I'm guessing that's the next thing that happens. How did you get? How did you go to America? And now I suppose we're coming closer and closer to the present present moment, right? In terms yes. of biography. Yes.
1: Again, uh, you know, after after many years of really nothing nothing happening, yeah, this simplicity, this emptiness, this asceticness in on all levels uh, falling away, which which was what wonderful. It was like being in the cave, being in the cave in the modern world. Uh, and then you know, gradually, this little bit of teaching here and there, but you know, again, there was no great big thing about it. Um, yeah, I, I because of my connection with this uh, lady that was uh, offering a non-duality platform, I got introduced to to Bat Gap, and well, actually, it was through somebody else. Uh, somebody came to one of my groups and she was actually a student of muji and we had a beautiful conversation outside of the the group setting and she was like you really should speak to (laughs) bat gap (laughs) buddha at the gas pump and yeah so bat gap and science and non-duality and i was like oh okay and i did i i i i i I did speak on Back Gap, I had an interview. Um, Again, I was very new to the whole non-duality scene and and didn't necessarily speak their language, although it was the same experience. Um, And then around that time, my mother died. Um, uh, My mother was in another country, but she died and it released Uh, to put it in a nutshell, a lot of energy, if you like, that had been trapped in that relationship. Um, And somehow that, uh, again, without any uh, agenda or, 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 you know, it just sort of came at us. It came at both Cavi and me. It's like, what are we doing here? What are we doing in England? It just didn't feel right. It's like, this isn't home even though it had been home for over 50 years, he's English, you know, totally. I, I'm, I'm not really, but I'm, I was brought up as English. Um, something in us just knew that it wasn't our home. <laughs> We'd somehow got trapped there and that something new wanted to birth itself, if you like. And Uh, somehow I don't know it was connected on an energetic level not being in the dynamic with my mother anymore meant that I could fully give myself to whatever was being called for in the world and synchronistically opportunities came my book was published in America I got invited to sand somehow there was a little bit of uh, financial resource to get us to America, at least on the flight. And over a couple of years, the realization that let's go, but let's go was like a complete jump into the unknown. And of course there was a bit of a process with the visa and residency and all that. Um, and again, miraculously or not so miraculously, um, that was successful. And we went, and it was a leap into the unknown, totally. No resources, no, like, oh, yes, you can have a speaking engagement here. We didn't actually know. The only thing I knew was sand, (laughs) the conference once a year. Um, That's not enough. Um, But, you know, life took a very different turn. Again, it wasn't like any. Super (laughs) stardom. It was. It was. It was work. It just started to come. You know, I don't mean work in the conventional sense, but I started to be in the world and interact with people and interact from a very different place and be received, if you like, and be challenged and constantly living in the unknown. I mean, like. Like the umbilical cord with our past was cut totally new culture, new psychology, if you like a different psyche, new interactions. Uh, we were lucky to be hosted for a few years by somebody in their home because we had no capacity to, to rent a home at that point. Um, and so life went on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so very interesting. And what year was that, that you moved to America?
1: The end of 2016.
0: Mm-hmm. You talked a bit about, you were talking about the scene, right, the non-duality scene, and certainly, especially at that time, wow, yeah, that was really a scene. So it's a scene with its own way of doing things, its own... Um, Famous figures and, and teachers and tribes and this sort of thing. Mm. So I'm curious, you know, what what did you make of that? What your encounter with um, through portals like sand and even the um, non-duality circuit that you start, you were, you were beginning to do a little bit of that in the UK. As yes. You said. Um, what was it like to encountering these other teachers, um, uh, people, you know, the, the the whole way it's done? It's a very specific format. Yeah. So I'm curious, what what, what was that like?
1: Well, I met everything with such freshness. I met everything with such goodness. The goodness in everything. I I I didn't come with any preconceived ideas or or any, you know, sort of looking at judging things or dividing things. I was totally unaware of the non-dual scene. I landed in the Bay Area of all places because that's where sand was. And then that's where we were invited to to, to live with somebody who graciously did that. It was supposed to be three months, ended up being three years. Um, So we kind of overstayed our welcome, but um, maybe not. It it was a beautiful relationship. We had a beautiful friendship. But throughout that period, everything was new, everything was fresh. It was only over that time that I started to sense that there was actually a a scene, almost a non-dual bubble, um, that did have certain figures that were known and those that were lesser known and those that were trying to be known and that was quite an eye opener. And it was like, well, that's the world. Everything has uh, a a scene, if you like, everything is a club of some sort. I wasn't interested in that. And yet I seemed to circulate within it, sometimes outside of it, because I got invited to other parts of America that were not part of the non-dual scene. (laughs) It's still spiritual, obviously, but uh, you know, I ended up on the East coast and it was much more Buddhist and uh, other places as well. <clears throat> so I was much more eclectic in all the invitations I received were much more eclectic. But there was a time initially where I thought, wow, I'm getting trapped by this and I don't want to be trapped by this. And I was like, well, how, the, how did I ever become this? Is, is this? is this what I'm doing now? You know, I found myself in a very specific role and I experienced many projections, either projections of elevation uh, or, or, or challenges that, you know, who the hell are you kind of thing. And that was challenging, but something in me could not, if you like, deny what was wanting to move. It just felt like an expression or movement of love in the world yeah, or truth in the world. And so it just continued to, to, to take up invitations because that's really what it was. And again, over time, that's been refined. So where there was an absolute yes to every single invitation that came up, I, if invitations come now, I'm much more discerning. Yeah, again, that's healthy boundaries.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Uh, you know, this has been so fascinating. Uh, there is one, and we've been talking for a long time, so um, I don't want to keep you here forever and ever, but uh, there is uh, one topic that I'd love to pivot to if we could before we finish this, uh, this installment, which is the feminine face of awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, So you talk about this, the feminine face of awakening, and you contrast that with, um, you've used the words, patriarchal view of enlightenment. I'd like to know what you mean by that. And also New Age Ascendance. So I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about these things. What's the patriarchal view of enlightenment? What's New Age Ascendance? And what's the feminine face of awakening?
1: So I'll have to just preempt that by saying... I really don't talk much about the feminine uh, face or side or approach to awakening. And I don't really like any division between feminine and masculine because that's not really how I experience it however I did write about it and there is something in it that is worth um exploring uh, or at least touching on um, part of that was was actually in response to what people saw or what people experienced through what I was offering um, I mean, one is on a very basic level, I am a woman. (laughs) There are, of course, other female teachers around, and increasingly so, perhaps not so much in the early days, Um, although there are, of course. Um, Usually those female teachers do not, uh, if I may use the term, rise into great visibility or prominence. There is still uh, a... Uh, sort of unconscious, it's not premeditated in any way, but there is still a a sort of, let's call it a boys' club, (laughs) which I think is endemic in all fields of society, including the spiritual world. Traditionally, and I mean traditionally, teachers have been men. I'm not talking about the saints, yeah, There have been female saints, I mean, teachers, teachers that speak, that can, you know, uh, have clarity and directness. Um, Traditionally, that's male, traditional teachings. And again, um, this is a generalization. It's not all true, but, you know, Buddhist teachings and Advaitic teachings and so on and so on mostly male teachers that we know about Um, so that's one thing but it's not really about male or female and and all of that it's more about those two things one is the 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 feminine if i if i'm going to speak about a feminine aspect or frequency to to awakening it's it's only to contrast it with what has become a non-dual if we let's just look at that perspective which tends to be a realization of the mind yeah clear seeing of the mind illuminated mind um, but it doesn't often or always descend all the way into the human lived ordinary experience which is where it has to go through the heart into the vulnerability which is always a surprise. It seems, yeah, because the the, the 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 spiritual ego, which very often there is a remnant of that, takes ownership of awakening or enlightenment, and then it becomes just that. And I'm speaking about something else, which is a, it's it's an ongoing surrender that 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 goes deep into all the defended and vulnerable places which is on the human level and that's what I speak about the embodiment and I think of course there are male teachers who who are that and and I see that contemporary teachers and traditional teachers but there's a tendency for that to be on this level Um, so that's one thing the other thing is the patriarchy that is and en- sort of embedded in all aspects of society including spirituality which is a top-down yeah kind of thing which again is part of religion is part of spiritual traditions where of course that you know a teacher has value I mean I'm a teacher myself if, if you, you know I'm, I'm in that role but what happens is that is the authority is given to that and then we have all sorts of problems yeah not wanting to to break away from the group the kind of scandals the power things that go on that's the extreme but it happens on a more subtle level so unless a teacher can reflect back authority to the individual then it's still playing in that patriarchal realm, <laughs> or there's sets of principles or teachings that have to be learnt or followed, or ways of behaving, or ways of being, or ways of living. Yeah, again, this is all a sort of patriarchal trickle down, and I I just think that that's over. It's done. It doesn't serve anything. Um, so I, I think that's what I mean by, by feminine. And I think that feminine is perhaps coming, um, more alive or awake in, in, in men and women now. So it's not, it's really not about men or women, and it's not about feminism or anything like that, but it's about, uh, the uh, sort of an inner marriage really again. Yeah. Of presence and openness, yeah, one's masculine, one's feminine, but ultimately they're not, yeah, it's beyond masculine and feminine. So it gets tricky to talk about it on that level. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Now I'm, I'm curious, this is a PS. Um, did you uh, encounter this boys club when you were, uh, you know, you came to America and you're sort of beginning to accept these invitations, did you encounter it?
1: I would say it's subtle i would say it's subtle i i i i don't really have a definitive answer on whether there is a boys club or there isn't i think there's a tendency for the male speaker the male teacher the male anything to naturally have When I say naturally, I don't mean naturally because it's not natural, but to automatically have more recognition and be given more authority because that is how it's always been as far as we know. Yeah, men are given a place of authority, of recognition, of knowing, yeah, Uh, uh, women are secondary and of course not so much in the west but it has been part of our history and the way that women have mostly come to be equal with men is by either fighting for their rights shouting for their rights or emulating men that's called the feminist movement yeah. Now, of course, that's changing now, but I think it's, as a woman, and I really am not a feminist and have never been interested in that. In fact, I sort of, if anything, I identified more with the masculine when I was younger, not in form, but in mind. Yeah? Um, uh, but I, I, I sense, as, as a female body, that I, I sense the suppression of the female it's secondary or the female way or the way of surrender or the way of openness or the way of the heart. And I'm not talking about flouncy, flouncy, new agey, nicey, nicey, girly, girly, yeah, <laughs> dancy, dancey. I'm talking about that inner, inner vulnerability, openness and undefendedness, receptivity that is a natural uh, way of, of woman unless she tries to also be like a man and then she can succeed in the world and have that recognition. But I'm talking about something different. And, and because my mother has come from a culture of the suppressed female, I, maybe I'm more in touch with that. Yeah. So I think, and also because as a, as growing up, I tried to be, uh, I didn't try to be a boy physically. (laughs) I wasn't a tomboy or anything like that. But I think I tried to be a man in a masculine in mind to succeed intellectually, to succeed in terms of recognition, to succeed in terms of academia, to get the approval of my father because women were wives and mothers and... So on and so on, and uh, I think that's what I'm referring to. So it's subtle; it's definitely subtle, but I I think it is sort of still there.
0: (laughs) Well, once again, this has been so fascinating. You know, I think there may be a third one, some months. You know, uh, who knows? Um, But uh, uh, you know, this has been so great. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, Is there anything left to say? Do you have any closing remarks or anything that's still is on your mind that you like to like to share or offer? It doesn't have to be.
1: No, I, like I said, my mind is empty unless it's, uh, (laughs) unless it's got a job to do. So (laughs) um, I don't really have anything. No, I I think that's, uh, I'm sure we, I'm sure we went to a lot of uh, places that we wouldn't normally go to. Um, And there's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, there's nothing to, to hold back if you like. Um, It's all, part of the the rich tapestry of of a life that is experienced as you know not my own it it has its own that's all I will say I, I experience all of this as a river that's flowing through me called life that actually I have no control over yeah uh, everything that's happened, I have had no control over. And that's not being a victim. That's just, uh, I guess that's non-doership. I just see it happening. It, yeah, it's just happening. I, I had no idea any of this was happening. One could, could call it destiny. Yeah, our destiny isn't our own, of our own making. We have a choice how to respond to it. And that makes all the difference. We can respond with rejection and resentment and some kind of grievance or we can respond with a great relaxation and soft yes and all of that and it makes the difference but the actual details are totally not in my control <laughs> so I have, I have no idea where it's going to go and what will unfold
0: Amodama, <laughs> mm-hmm. thank you very much You're welcome.
1: Thank you. Until next time.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.